Philip Yancey, a contemporary Christian author, some of you read some of his stuff, wrote a book some time ago called Where is God When It Hurts? After writing the book, he received all kinds of communications from a variety of people who said, yeah, you wrote about physical pain, but what about my pain? What about my emotional pain? Why does God so often disappoint us? So Yancey decided that in spite of his questions, in spite of the fact that he would have to confront questions that he had no easy answers for, in spite of his own personal struggles with his feelings of disappointment with God, wrote a book called Disappointment with God, Three Questions No One Asks Out Loud. One of these questions had to do with the inattentiveness of God. I don't know. Maybe... Maybe that's your struggle. You're struggling with God's inattentiveness, and there's some disappointment there. Understand this has been a kind of a difficult year for this church. Difficult decisions were made, and when difficult decisions are made, usually there's misunderstanding, and there's conflict, and all of that kind of stuff. But knowing you as, as I do, I know many of you have been down on your knees, and you've spent a lot of time praying, haven't you? Begging, pleading, asking God that things would be different. But today, as a result of what has happened or not happened, things do not seem to be different. And you're thinking, God, why didn't you? I mean, we've prayed, we've fasted, we've expected. God, it's not like you not to be listening, but... And so he seems so inattentive. Your prayers have not been answered. And so I'd say if you're kind of feeling that disappointment right now, and you're thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me, um, let me just say, hang in there with me this morning, because I'm sure it's only a matter of time where you will have an experience where you will feel that disappointment. So let me talk about that today. Let me give you several observations. Number one, we need to understand there's a limit to what you and I are capable of understanding about God. So verse in the book of Psalms, 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Unsearchable. In other words, there's a limit to what you and I can understand about God. My guess is that many of us here this morning, maybe most of us have grown up in church. You've been readers of your Bible, students of the Bible for some time. You've learned a lot about God, and there's a lot that you and I have learned to appreciate about God. But the psalmist says there's a part of him. His greatness is unsearchable. There's a limit to what you and I will understand about God, what he does, why, and so on. Second observation, your feelings of disappointment are not unique to you. I mean, all of us, we have these times in our life, don't we? In fact, if we had a moment of honesty here, and I asked you to share kind of some of your experiences with God, my guess is many of you would use words like disappointed, unfair, unpredictable, inattentive, distant, hidden, silent, Cool towards me, late, uncooperative. That's true, isn't it? In fact, let me check it out. 
Raise your hand. How many of you have had a time in your life where you have sensed, and there's been that kind of disappointment with God? Raise your hand. Look around. Look around. Yeah. You see, sometimes it's hard for us because we think we are the only ones who are experiencing God in this way. But every one of us has a story to tell. These feelings, I think, are intensified because, well, there's probably a number of reasons for that. One has to do with the way we as preachers talk about this. I mean, they make you feel, and I'm sure I've done this, but sometimes we preachers have a way of talking about following Jesus, and we make it sound so easy. I mean, preachers preach. People say amen. They walk out. Everybody looks like they're happy. They got it all together. And meanwhile, you're sitting there, and you're thinking, what's wrong with me? I mean, it sounds so easy. What's, what's wrong with me? And while you're feeling this, what's wrong with me, it starts to wear on you, and so you get the courage to call your friend, you share with him your struggle that God seems distant, inattentive, cool, whatever the words you want to use. And what does your friend say to you? They say things like, well, come on, you just need to get more faith. You just need to read your Bible more. You need to start memorizing. Or there's some sin in your life, and that's why. And you feel the bottom line is just all my fault. Christianity seems to be working for everybody else except you. Folks, can, can we admit at times in our life, can we just admit that we sometimes have a hard time with our faith when God seems inattentive, uncooperative? Maybe it's not some preacher, but maybe it's Maybe it's the people you work with. I mean, you look at their life, you know, and and everything is just going so well for them. I mean, they're healthy. They put their house on the market. They get thousands of dollars more than what they asked for. Their kids are great. Their grandkids, man, they get scholarships. Their investments are bringing them great returns. They have money to do with whatever they want. And you look around at those people, and you're saying to yourself, they're not even good people. I mean, they don't go to church they never volunteer for anything. They go golfing Sunday mornings. They put $5 and donate to the Cancer Society, and they feel like they just made a huge sacrifice. And here you are. I mean, you don't buy lottery tickets because you know that's not the good thing to do. You go to church. You give faithfully. You sacrifice. You volunteer. And yet you're the one who seems to have the issues, not them. Then sometimes it's our Christian friends I mean, they just seem to make everything worse. You know, they say crazy things like, you know, I I was at the mall the other day. I was in a hurry. It was raining. And I just prayed that God would give me a parking space right by the door. And so as you're driving up, sure enough, right as you got there, this lady pulls out. You couldn't have gotten a better spot. And you're saying, God answers my prayer. And you and I are going, shut up. Because we've been asking God. We've been pleading with God. Maybe for a job. Direction regarding the future. Life partner. Maybe our mom and dad wouldn't fight so much. Or our friend would come to the Lord. Or maybe it's a medical thing. And we don't see anything changing. And we are thinking, 
And God answered your prayer for a parking spot? What's, what's up with that? Or you're part of a small group and people are talking about how God helped them find their car keys or what they wanted to buy was on sale. And on that basis, they say, man, God is just so good. And they got all these petty prayers going on. And meanwhile, you've got this major stuff going on and you're asking and you're asking and you're begging and you're begging and there's no progress. Nothing seems to be changing. Doesn't that, doesn't that make you mad? Some of us have some friends who've left the church because of their feelings of disappointment, haven't they? Maybe, maybe you're in one of those seasons right now. You know, two weeks ago I read this article about this new group they've identified who are leaving the church. And um, they, they call them the Dunners. These are people who are done with the church. And uh, they, in this article, they talked about these individuals as, as being the people who the church relied on for leadership, service, financial support, and it's those people that are leaving, giving into their disappointment and leaving. Maybe you've been tempted like that the last little while. I mean, over the years, you have given so much, but the payoff just hasn't been there for you. God's silent, hidden, inattentive, uncooperative. I mean, you keep coming to church for now because you really don't want anyone to know that you're close to dropping out, closing to giving up on Jesus and the church. But the bottom line is you're struggling with your disappointment with God. Some of you are tracking with me right now and you're thinking, Albert, you better not give me any easy answers. You better not. Don't give me some bumper sticker kind of answer because you're here. And, I mean, there's no way that you want to give up on God, but at the same time, you're kind of wondering, will things be different? So you're asking, is there a way to engage God so that I sense he's actually working, better yet, working on my behalf? Leads me to say, fourthly, when we wrestle with this issue, you know, our minds do some pretty crazy things. You see, when we wrestle with the inattentiveness of God, the silence of God, whatever language you want to use, our minds do some crazy things, and we start believing some lies. Lies like, since God is silent, therefore, he must be absent. I mean, isn't that how you feel? Since God is not answering my prayer, that must mean God does not care. Or since God is not acting on my behalf, not doing what I need him to do, then maybe, maybe my Sunday school teacher was wrong when she kept telling us all the time that God is good. Or if God is not going to act on my behalf, then why should I pray? Why should I read my Bible? Why should I go to church? What's the point? What's the point of following Jesus being a disciple? Or since I can't remember the last time he did something for me, maybe maybe he doesn't exist. I mean, how can I have a relationship with someone I can't be sure he even exists? Yeah, sometimes our minds do crazy things, don't they? 
We put our head on the pillow at night, and there's some pretty heavy stuff going on. And your disappointment with God surfaces a lot of issues. So here's what I hope we will take from this. I hope we realize that when we go through these times, these times of wilderness-type experiences, seasons of our life, whatever language you want to use, that we still can maintain our strong faith and confidence in God. And there is every reason to do so. Every reason to do so. No, no, maybe, maybe I'm the only one who needs to be thinking about this in the last little while. But, you know, I found it helpful to look at some of the people in the Bible who loved God, who did some great things for God, and look at their experience, their disappointments, and how they handle that. And we want to look at one of those stories today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 11, the passage that was already read. Let me give you a little bit of background. And I wish we had time to get into the background, because it's really a fascinating story. Um, there's, there's a major scandal going on in the royal family. King Herod, the guy that we're familiar with, because he's the guy who killed all of those little babies around Bethlehem, he had three sons. And one of his sons said to his brother's wife, whose name was Herodias, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but I've fallen in love with you. And this lady said, well, I don't know how to tell you this either, but I fall in love with you too. And so they ran off to Galilee together. She divorced her husband. It was kind of a big scandal. She became the queen of Galilee. They moved in together, and everything was great. Life was good until a guy by the name of John the Baptist showed up. Remember John, cousin of Jesus? Chosen by God to be the forerunner of Jesus. God sent John to preach a very simple message. He basically said, people, knock it off. What you're doing is wrong. Stop doing it. And so he preached, repent, repent, repent. (coughs) And the reason you need to repent is because if you don't repent, you'll miss the activity of God. You won't see what God is doing. And you remember how the ordinary folks, they just loved John. I mean, he was not afraid of anyone. He just said what was on his mind. And so people repented as a sign of their repentance. They got baptized. You say, well, how do those those two stories intersect? Well, you see, the marriage of Herodias and Herod was contrary to Jewish law. Even though none of the Herods were Jewish, it was still very offensive to the Jewish people. And so John decides to call them out on it. He confronts them. He does it publicly. He decides to publicly speak against the sin of Herodias. This is against Jewish law. This is offensive to the Jewish people. To marry your husband's brother is an abomination. It's adulterous. It's a sin against God. And as you can imagine, Herodias does not appreciate this kind of publicity. And so she says to her husband, we've got to shut that guy up. You know, we need to get John off the street. And her husband says, yeah, you're right. This is rather embarrassing. And so that's your biblical sources tell us. Because he was afraid of a major negative reaction from the people, he decides not to put John to death, but he decides to put John in prison. And put yourself in John's shoes. I mean, let's talk about John's disappointment. Chosen by God to introduce Jesus to the world. He did his assignment well. In fact, one day when he was preaching, Jesus walked up and John stopped his preaching and said, look at that individual. 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A little while later, John said to his followers, you know, I appreciate your loyalty. I appreciate your support, your commitment, but you need to quit following me and you need to follow Jesus. I mean, John could have kind of said, you know, hey, it's a great opportunity here. But no, you need to follow Jesus. You remember the time where the religious leaders came and, and said, are you the one, John? I mean, think of it. Think of the opportunity for John. Could have taken advantage of the situation, just gathered a whole crowd around him. But he makes sure people understand that it's not him, but that it's Jesus. My point is, John has done everything that God has asked him to do, and yet he's stuck in prison. He preached the message of God. He got people ready to follow Jesus. He encouraged his own followers to transfer their loyalty and commitment to Jesus. He did everything that God asked him to do to the best of his ability, and now he's in prison for doing the right thing. Not the wrong thing, but the right thing for being obedient to God. He's stuck in a prison where he's no longer able to fulfill his calling, no longer able to do what God had called him to do, no longer making a contribution to the kingdom of God, just stuck in prison. Can you imagine how he felt? Kind of like a waste. Go to Matthew's story, Matthew 11. We have John's friends come and visit him and let him know what's going on in the outside world. John gets to hear about it. He gets to hear about Jesus doing all this incredible stuff, these miracles, demons being cast out, Jesus touching women, which was unheard of thing in that culture. But Jesus touched, Jesus even healed a Roman's servant. And so here is Jesus doing all of these wonderful things for strangers, even Romans, for strangers and doing absolutely nothing for John. Let me tell you, John was not feeling the love sitting in prison. And so what happens? John's got a lot of time to think. Begins to have second thoughts about Jesus. Remember we said that when we struggle with the inattentiveness of God, our mind sometimes takes us to crazy places. Well, one day, when his friends are visiting, John decides to ask his friends a question. He says, guys, I, I, I know this is a little embarrassing, but I need to send a message to Jesus. Well, what do you want us to ask Jesus? Here's what I want you to ask him. Ask him, is he the one, or should we expect someone else? Is he really the Messiah? And can't you picture his friends? Probably shock written over all their faces. John, wait, wait, you want us to ask him that? John, you've spent your entire life telling people Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, but I'm having second thoughts right now. But John, I mean, we've just told you about all the amazing things that he's doing. Yeah, but I need some assurance. But John, he's totally unique. We have never seen a religious person like this before. He's awesome. He's wonderful. He's fantastic doing what he does, teaching what he teaches. He has to be the Messiah. Yeah, but... Okay, John, if you insist, this is kind of embarrassing. I mean, you of all people should not be having doubts. And why is this important to us? It's important to us because 
of the way that our circumstances have a way of impacting our view of and confidence in God. Isn't it interesting how our situation has a way of influencing our view of God and freedom to go with God? You know, I've discovered over the years, it doesn't really matter whether the circumstances are good or whether the circumstances are bad. It always has a way of impacting our view of God, how we feel about God. Our situation can change for the good or it can change for the bad, but it always has a way of impacting our trust level, our confidence, our commitment to go with God or not to go with God. I mean, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Isn't it interesting how sometimes in our minds, God becomes different because of our circumstances, because our situation has changed? I mean, that's what's happening to John. He's seen a lot, he's heard a lot, but now all of a sudden his world is no bigger than his prison cell and his mind prompts him to doubt, to question. Anyway, his friends come to Jesus. Jesus, you know, we kind of hate to interrupt you, but your cousin John, you know, he's stuck in prison out there. He's asked us to ask you and to tell you the truth. We're kind of shocked that he would actually ask us to ask you. But, But he's asked us to ask you, are you really the one? And how does Jesus respond? doesn't say, of course I'm the one. Go tell John to grow up. Or tell him we're going to break him out tonight. You know, we'll just graffiti the walls, have a lot of fun. No, he doesn't say that. Jesus does three things. First of all, he gives John perspective. Brothers and sisters, this is for you and this is for me. When God seems inattentive, When it seems like God does not care, when it seems like he's not paying attention, Jesus says, Matthew 11, 4, go back and report to John what you hear and see. What's going on? Why does he instruct John's friends to go tell John what's going on? Because, you see, John couldn't hear past his prison cell. He couldn't see past his little prison bars of his circumstances, his pain. Like me sometimes. Like you sometimes, right? Get into a tough situation. All we can think about how bad things are for us. Jesus says, go back and tell him about the activity of God outside of his prison cell. Because, you see, John is a prisoner to what he can see here And it's shrunk him down to the size of his prison. And that's prompting him to ask the question, are you the one? And so go tell John what God is doing. Give him perspective. And then Jesus goes on to tell him what to report. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. And so they're writing all this down, and they turn to go, and I really don't know how all of this went down. I, 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 I don't know how you can imagine what's going on here, but I can just imagine Jesus saying to them, go and tell John what's going on. So they turn to go. And again, what's the lesson for you and me? So what do you do? When your God seems distant, inattentive, cool towards you, when God does not come and bail you out of your prison, what do you do? 
Well, I think if we were to ask Jesus, he would say the same thing to us as he said to John. Here's my updated version of what Jesus says. Jesus said to John, I think Jesus would say two things. Go back into your life. Look back over your life. Reflect back on the activity of God in your life. Look outside of your present set of circumstances, your present prison walls, to all the times when God, in fact, did come through for you. Because what's happening right now does not, does not discard the reality of your past. What you may be going through right now may be prompting your disappointment, but don't discount what God has already done and how faithful he has been to you in the past. Now, some of you may be thinking, but Albert, you know, that, that's precisely my problem because it's been a long time. In fact, I can't remember the last time God answered one of my prayers specifically. I can't remember the last time God did something really special for me. I can't remember the last time I had one of those kind of experiences. If that's where you're at, I would say, and I think Jesus would say, Maybe, maybe it's time to get outside of your little world, not think about what God is not doing for you, but what God is doing in the world. For example, Philip Jenkins writes in The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity, in 1900, there were approximately 10 million Christians in Africa. By 2000, there were 360 million. By 2025, conservative estimates sees that number rising to 633 million. The same estimates put the number of Christians in Latin America in 2025 at 640 million and in Asia at 460 million. The next statement is important. This story of Christianity's explosive growth is one of the great untold stories of our time, a story that North American Christians need to hear. Why? Because it's a sign that no matter how bad things seem at home, God is at work in the world. Every word proclaimed, it's proclaimed. The gospel is changing lives and societies. So John, people at Ebenezer, you may be feeling disappointed because it doesn't seem that God's doing anything. God doesn't care. Maybe, maybe it's time to get outside of your own present set of circumstances and look at the activity of what God is doing in the world. Tell John to catch a fresh glimpse of the activity of God outside of his prison cell, and when he does, he will have the assurance that I am the one sent from God. But I'm not going to bail him up. And then it's like Jesus calls the friends back, Kind of like, one more thing, make sure you tell him, and this is really important, make sure you remind him, verse 6, Matthew 11, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. CEV translates that God will bless everyone who doesn't reject me because of what I do. Wait a minute, Jesus. Say that again. We're hearing you right. You're saying, that you may actually do some things, cause certain things to happen, allow things to happen that could potentially cause someone to stumble and fall? Yeah, go back and tell John. 
Blessed is anyone who does not stumble at count of me. God blesses those who do not turn away because of me or because I seem inattentive or that seem like I don't care. Blessed is anyone who stays with me in spite of their disappointment. And I can imagine John's friend saying, Jesus, come on, he's in prison. He's losing his faith. Doubt is taking over. Jesus says, yeah, I realize that's happening because I have left him in prison. But, oh, we know, Jesus, what's going on here. Yeah, you don't like John. I mean, cousins, teenagers, he did something to you. You're just kind of getting revenge right now, right? And Jesus, you're saying, John is going to be in prison no matter how much faith he had, no matter how obedient he's been, no matter how well he's fulfilled his calling, and even though you knew he was going to, be, was going to really be hard on his faith, even though you have the power to bail him out, but for some reason you've chosen not to. And it's like Jesus says, let me help you understand. Verse 11, truly I tell you, among those born of a woman, born of a woman, that's just about everybody except Adam and Eve, right? Among those born of a woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John's one of the greatest guys who's ever lived. Now, let me tell you, folks, why this is good news. Good news for you and for me. It's good news because it says to you and me that your personal circumstances do not necessarily coincide with how God feels about you. Your personal circumstances do not necessarily coincide with how God feels about you. My personal circumstances. Because, you see, like John, when we go through these dry seasons, when we are in the season of disappointment where it feels like God has not done anything for us lately, when things seem to be getting worse and we need to think that our personal circumstances are a reflection of how God views us, Jesus says, no, no. Not at all. Your personal circumstances are not a reflection of how God views you. This church's circumstances are not necessarily a reflection of how God views this church. If you want proof of that, the proof of how God feels about you, go back to Easter. Go back to what happened on the cross where Jesus Christ died for you. And so don't think and focus what's happening at home, what's happening in church, what's happening in school, what's happening in the hospital room. Do not make the mistake of hanging your faith on what has God done for me lately kind of thing. John, the cousin of Jesus, the forerunner of Jesus, the one prophesied in the Older Testament, the one of whom Jesus said, there isn't anyone greater than John wants John to know that his set of personal circumstances are not necessarily a reflection of how God viewed him. Well, you know, the story doesn't end well for John, and we don't have time to explore that today, but let me just wrap it up with what Jesus said. He said, blessed, the Amplified Bible suggests the following ways to translate this, happy, fortunate, to be envied, Blessed is anyone, that's you and me, right? I mean, he's not just talking about the people in his immediate time, but you and me, anyone. He's looking down the road. Blessed is anyone, you and me, 
sitting here this morning, blessed by God, is anyone who does not fall away, stumble, lose faith, give up hope, because it seems God is inattentive. Because it seems like God has forgotten your name. Doesn't know where you live. God isn't paying attention. You're blessed of God. Reminds me of something Jesus said in Matthew 24. He was talking about what is going to happen at the end of time, and he says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm will be saved. Kind of intrigued by the phrase, the love of most will grow cold. Love cold, that's a temperature thing, isn't it? You see, it's not a commitment thing. It's not that people no longer serve and give and sacrifice and fight for social justice and so on, but while they're doing it, their heart will be cold. But the one who stands firm, the one who will be hot for Jesus, whose love is hot, the person who loves Jesus with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, that person, in spite of their circumstances, I mean, they just keep on rejoicing in the Lord. The person who continues to have this passion for Jesus, in spite of the fact that God seems inattentive, in spite of the prison they find themselves in, that person is blessed. Favorite. You may be sitting here this morning, and maybe no one knows what you're feeling these days. I mean, you're thinking, what would people think if they knew? But you're struggling. You're thinking, this Christian thing seems to be working for others, but not working for me. You tried to change some of the character deficiencies in your life, but no matter how hard you try, it's not happening. Or you're like this 32-year-old guy, non-Christian, said to me a little while ago, I come to your church, I look around, I see some people texting, I see a couple of people playing video games. I see one of the deacons sleeping through most of the services, and I wonder, is this real? I mean, is all this Jesus stuff real? Maybe, maybe that's your question this morning. Where you're sitting here, and you're blaming yourself big time, and you're focusing on regrets, failures, times where you made mistakes that had some significant consequences, your sin, and you've concluded that what you're getting from God these days, it's all your fault. I mean, if only you had, if you would have, if you would not have, and you're thinking, it's all your fault. Why should I be expecting anything different from God? If that's where you are today, I would say two things. John's story would tell us your personal circumstances are not a reflection of what and how God feels about you. I mean, if he allowed the greatest man who ever lived to rot away in prison and then later allowed him to be put to death, brothers and sisters, don't ever, don't ever, don't allow your circumstances to move you in the direction of doubting God's love for you. His concern for you his will for you, his plan for you, his ability to take what seems like a waste of time and use them to accomplish his purposes through you. Don't go there. Secondly, blessed are you if, 
God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. Bible says, Revelation 21, he who overcomes, I will be their God, and they will be my child. It, it, it sounds like not giving in to your disappointment is worth it, right? I will be their God, and you will be my child. Psalms is right. Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. God bless you.